Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll continue in our study of this amazing epistle. I uh, confess that I am growing more and more in love with the book of Ephesians every day. I get to study, get to prepare. It is um, deep and wide, and I think I see new things every time I open this amazing book. What I want to do is read the fuller context of what we're going to be looking at this morning, and then we'll isolate our attention to one verse. Let me read the paragraph for us, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, But immorality or any purity, impurity, or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. For our study this morning, we're going to isolate again our attention to verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. When Kim and I were in Israel a few weeks ago, we overlapped with our expositor seminary trip and the the last few days there and our our church trip with some folks who came over. And we had to transport at one point uh, in that transition from Galilee all the way down to Tel Aviv. And we took a long taxi ride. On this taxi ride, I was intrigued to see that our cab driver was, was wearing a baseball hat for the Las Vegas Raiders, NFL hat. So with Kim and I both being fans of the Kansas City Chiefs, I tried to engage him about the AFC West divisional race. It was clear from that first question that he had no idea what I was talking about. In fact, he had no idea who the Raiders are. So I asked him, Dude, you always start a question like that with dude. Dude, where did you get this hat in Israel for for the Raiders? He said, oh, I love this hat. It's a cool hat. I'm very proud of it. He was also boasting to us, ask him, 
He was boasting to us that he got a good deal on it, paying $60 for a baseball hat. We didn't have the heart to tell him he was robbed. (laughs) But then I thought, maybe I should bring like a whole suitcase of baseball hats to Israel. (laughs) He was wearing a hat from a team that he had no connection with and had no representation for. That's a clear illustration of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Typically, we attribute that to taking God's name in vain and say it's cussing or cursing. No, no, that's not what this is talking about. Because the word, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the word take is to wear. You shall not wear the name of the Lord in a vain way. It's about taking, carrying, wearing the, na- wearing the name of God. In other words, the third commandment is not anything other than a claim that if you say you belong to Yahweh, if you say you belong to God, you should act like it. And if you say you belong to the Savior, you should have a credible testimony that points to that. Well, that's the same drivetrain that is moving Paul's argument here in the last phrase of verse 3. Look at that again. As is proper among saints. The word saints there is holy ones. As is proper among believers, no immorality or impurity of any kind or greed must even be named among you as is proper among Christians of of holy ones. We say it this way. God has clear expectations for believers, his adopted children. That's been his message since the last half, excuse me, the, the very beginning of Chapter 4, going into the last half right before chapter 5, look back at chapter 4, verse 1 for a moment. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to live, walk, live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Live according to your profession. If you say you belong to Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, the King of kings, then you ought to act like it. That's his message. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, he exhorts us to imitate God and then to walk in love. And now here in verse 3, he turns the coin of Christian living over from what we should do to what we should not do. And that's always a two-sided coin. That's why he has this whole section on put off, put on, put off, put on, stop this, start that. John Calvin says, he whose life differs not from that of unbelievers, has learned nothing of Christ. For the knowledge of Christ cannot be separated from the mortification of the flesh. Can't be separated. Walter Layfield says, the teaching in summary is this, that there should be a radical difference between pre- and post-conversion character for a Christian. We're different because of Christ. We're different when he comes into our life. The concept goes all the way back to the beginning of the book. Hold your finger there and go back to Ephesians chapter one. Look at chapter one, how we began our study. A lot of people get tripped up about predestination and God's choosing before the foundation of the world. Those were wonderful studies that we dove deep into when we were there, but 
Look at the causation, or the, the result rather. Ephesians 1.4, just as God, he chose us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. The intent of our salvation is, is to be holy children of God, adopted children who act like our new adoptive father. Let's be clear from the beginning of this study God expects believers to live lives marked by holiness. He expects our lives to be marked by moral purity. He expects our lives to be utterly different from the life we used to live and utterly different from the world. Quick orientation of the walk motif. We started this back in chapter 4, verse 1. Mentioned that a minute ago, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. The metaphor of walk is, is live, live like this. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, he says, Live, walk in unity. In verses 17 to 32, walk in holiness. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, walk in love. In chapter 5, verses 7 to 14, that we'll begin today, walk in light. Chapter 5, verse 5 to 6, 9, walk in wisdom. Walk, 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 and then the whole book concludes with stand. Stand in warfare. Stand strong in the Lord. Here in this walk section, this walk motif, in verses 7 to 14 of the fifth chapter, Paul explains what it means to walk or to live in the light, as light, and as children of light. Look down at verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8, for you were formerly darkness. Notice he doesn't say, we'll get here and study this deeply. He doesn't say you walked in darkness. He says you were darkness. But now you are, not you walk in, but you are light in the Lord. Now he says walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. Over the next five studies, we'll be breaking down what Paul's little mini section on walking in the light really means. Now, I've put up on, on the screen here what we're going to be doing in the coming weeks. Um, this is an overview. This is not the outline for today. But we're going to look at walking with illuminated, enlightened purity. That's today. We're going to be looking at walking with illuminated decency. That's in our next study on knowing how to joke appropriately and not joke inappropriately. Walking with illuminated circumspection where we understand eternity and heaven and hell and life and death. Then walking with sanctification, absolute holiness as our goal. And then walking with illuminated exposure. You know what that means? That we are walking as children of light and we end up exposing sin around us. But for today, we're looking at verse 3. Paul says, Verse 1, imitate God. And verse 2, walk in love. Verse 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. God's expectation. Make note of that last phrase, as is proper among the saints. That's going to drive us over the next few weeks. Living as is proper among the holy ones who he called and predestined and chose to be holy and blameless before him. God's proper expectation that we behave in that way is proper 
according to our identity as children, adopted children of God. And the place he begins in this walking in light little mini-series specifically is on our purity, our sexual purity. We're going to look at verse 3 and discover together three radical commitments for a life of purity. Three radical commitments for a life of purity. Let me tell you something I did not tell first hour. Because at the end of first hour, I, I determined, went in my office, sat during Sunday school and reviewed things. And we're going we're gonna to do this today, but next week we're going to pull the car over and talk about a biblical strategy for fighting sexual sin. Completely independent, but launching off of this passage. It's that important. Three radical commitments for a life of purity. All in verse 3. The first is this, no hint of immorality. No hint of immorality. But, then one word, immorality. Go to the end. Must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Immorality must not even be named among you. To imitate God, then, demands avoidance of every evil, of all evil, of recognized evil. I like the way the New International Version, the NIV, translates this, this verse. Let me read it to you. But among you, there must not be... Not, let me read it again. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. That's a great translation. Not even a hint. So verse 3 begins an important transition with that word but day in the Greek to show a contrast from living like the Lord, from imitating the Lord, from walking in love. But stop this, put off this, stop doing that, don't be like this. Now we come to the word immorality. You know this word. Whether you think you do or not, you know this word. It's the Greek word porneia, from which we get our word pornography from, porneia. Let me give you a very simple definition of what porneia is, what immorality is in this text. I'll read it a couple times. Porneia is any sexual desire or sexual experience outside of marriage. Any sexual desire or sexual experience outside of marriage. It might surprise some to know that God invented sexual intimacy. It was his design. It was his desire to give that to his creatures to be enjoyed in a husband-wife relationship. God invented sexual intimacy. God invented sexual desire. God invented sexual satisfaction and attraction. It was his idea. They're not evil. They're not bad. But sexual intimacy is and has been intended by God to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife exclusively. And I have to say this in the year in which we live, a man and a woman, husband and wife exclusively. We read it this morning in God's perfect timing. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. 
Marriage is to be held in honor among all men. And literally the bed, the marriage bed, the place where sexual intimacy occurs is to be unstained, uncorrupted, undefiled. What does he mean? For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. It's pretty simple how he qualifies that. The sexual intimacy is designed to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife, and to do anything other than that with our sexual desires is to fornicate or to be an adulterer. Back to our word porneia for a minute. It's translated several ways in the New Testament. Whoredom, fornication, idolatry. I think it's interesting. It means literally surrendering sexual purity. Surrendering sexual purity. It's primarily used of premarital um, uh, sexual relations and also extramarital sexual relations. As I said, we get the Greek, the English word pornography from the word porneia. And the point here is that sexual immorality is to have zero residence in the life of a believer, not even a hint, no mentioned, not even be named among us. Are you unmarried? Are you single? Then are you being pure in your relationships physically and mentally in terms of sexual desire and intimacy? Are you married? Are you staying faithful in mind and in deed to your wife or to your husband? Marriage is serious to God. It's not just another relationship on the planet. Marriage is very dear and very serious to God. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Jesus quotes the Genesis, Genesis narrative and says, This is God's design. And the one flesh there is, yes, the union of, of soul, but it's also one flesh in sexual union. God designed a man and a woman to come together uniquely, to fit together in a way that gives him glory and brings them pleasure. Marriage is a very serious responsible responsibility then, but it's also an indescribable blessing. Can, can, can I, my, my wife's home sick today, but can I just talk about my marriage for a minute? I love being married. I love being married to Kim. I am so grateful. If I could change it, though, I wouldn't have married her November 5th, 1996. Wouldn't have done it. Or four. Honey, I'm sorry. One of those years. <laughs> I got the November 5th right. I wouldn't have married her then. I would have married her way earlier, knowing what I know now. I hit the relational lottery in God's providence when I got married. And the longer we're married, three decades in now, I, I'm just thankful not for marriage. I'm thankful for marriage to her. And that's a gift of God's grace. Marriage is a serious responsibility, but it's also an indescribable blessing. That brings us to the issue in our world today related to this word, I, we have to talk about this for a minute. And we'll talk about this more next week. Pornea feeds the word pornography. 
I came across a report this week, and I don't know that I believe it. I'm just going to tell you right now. I read it, and I read it twice, and I copied it down, and I did some research on it, and the report was accurate in what it reported, but I was shocked. I knew I would find troubling news. I didn't know what I would find when I read this. This report said that 73% of women and 98% of men interviewed in this survey admitted to internet pornography use in the past six months. I didn't read those statistics wrong. 73% of women, 98% of men put those together, and that's 85% of the respondents said that they had viewed pornography in the past few months. I don't know if that's accurate. I don't know if there were believers in that, in that, uh, in that survey. But it was shocking. Why is that important? Because God tells us very clearly through His Son that He is concerned not just about external sexual purity and fidelity, but also mental or internal purity. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, does this sound familiar? You are the light of the world. Exactly what Paul said. Then in verse 27 of Matthew 5, he said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And they had heard that. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her, listen, in his heart. Jesus said that mental purity is as important to the Father as physical purity. And then he gives two stunning illustrations. If your right eye makes you stumble, the context here is, If your right eye makes you lust, if it contributes to sexual temptation, tear it out and throw it from you. We've talked about this before. That is a strange illustration. Because of the extreme measures, he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, wouldn't you agree that if you pluck your eye out, it's not doing you any more good? We know he's actually being metaphorical here because that would have been enough. He says, take it from you and throw it from you. Pluck it out and throw it from you. Go to radical dimensions, radical extremes. Why? <laughs> for it is better for you to lose one of your bo- parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He goes on. Hope you're left-handed. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and you got to throw it and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Can I say it as simply as Jesus did? The fight for sexual purity has eternity at stake. Jesus affirms the wickedness of sexual sin committed but he also goes to the heart to inform us that sexual sin imagined is also wicked to God. Not just sexual sin committed, but sexual sin imagined, thought of, fantasized about. On the issue of pornography, Al Mohler has famously written, men are tempted to give themselves to pornography. 
Women are tempted to commit pornography. What's he saying? We live in such an immodest season of culture right now. it's It's so troubling. So much of women's clothing is designed to leave very little to the imagination. You say, wow, Rick, that's, that's, that's kind of getting in our kitchen. It's what the word means. Any sexual thought or sin or action outside of marriage. So what does the sin of porneia include and involve? Two big categories. Sexual touching physical contact outside of the marriage relationship. It's called fornication before marriage and adultery after marriage. Think of it like this. Marriage is a a covenant relationship that God puts a border, a fence around. And before you get in that fence, sexual sin can occur, and that's, that's fornication, in mind or in deed. You're outside the fence, that's outside of God's bounds. Once you're inside that fence, inside that border, and then you have sexual thoughts or sexual actions outside of the wall of that border, that also is sin. And the point is that covenant relationship in a marriage bond is seriously, it's it's eternally serious to God. So it's sexual touching and physical contact outside of marriage. And according to Jesus, it also includes sexual imagination at anything that causes you to lust with sexual fantasy in your mind. It's external and it's internal. It's what we typically call pornography, but the definition of pornography might surprise you. Here's the, here's the I didn't make this up. This is, this is pornography. Quote, any display or description of nakedness and or sexually suggestive activities, end quote. Any display or description of nakedness and or sexually suggestive activities. This includes far more than what we strictly label as pornographic. It's displays that describe nudity or sexually suggestive situations All of those fall under this word porneia, sexual immorality in thought or in deed. It's not about the rating G, PG, PG 13. It's about the content. It's not just about the ratings in movies also. It's about your phones. It's about your tablets. It's about your computers. I recently met with a dear friend who has graciously sought some help on this struggle. He was talking to me about how clever he had been to cover his tracks. And I don't understand what this means, but cleaning out his, his cash and, and uh, his history and everything. And what I was so encouraged by, he says, but suddenly one day it dawned on me that I might be covering my tracks with anyone who would look at my computer, but I wasn't covering my tracks with God. That's where real repentance begins. Is where God matters in our thoughts and God matters in our activities. Oh, how many ways do we justify porneia in our minds? 
We say things like, well, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't really bother me. <laughs> I hope it does, but if it doesn't, it bothers God. It was serious enough for him to execute his son to pay for. Or how about this one? It doesn't involve anyone but me. Well, not true. It robs you of power and ministry. It cripples you with guilt. You may be saying, well, Rick, are you talking about TV and movies? And Yes! I think Jesus did. How lazy are we with our moral standards sometimes? If you can identify immorality, porneia, then you can repent of it. But if you misidentify it, if you don't see it as sexual sin, then you'll coddle it and protect it and promote it. Paul says there should be no hint not even a mention of that in our lives. Nothing. As I said, we're going to dive into that and how we repent better from it next week. He uses a second word here, very interesting. No hint of impurity. Let no immorality. And then he says, or any impurity, any kind of impurity. I think all three of these words, immorality, impurity, and greed, have to do with sexual sin. This word is paired with the word porneia in several places. It points to the accusations that make you, actions rather, that make you unclean, unworthy for worship. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The same two Greek words are used together in a very familiar context. You, you probably studied this before. In 1 Thessalonians 4, you're welcome to turn there or just listen. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, namely, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, porneia. You abstain from it, all forms of it, mentally and physically, in thought and in deed. Abstain from it. And that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. A lot of views on that. I think it's probably your own body in holiness and in honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Implication, if you know God, you have self-control and sexual passions. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is avenger of all these things just as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of, here's our word in Ephesians, impurity, but in holiness and sanctification. They're used together in the same way about sexual purity. It echoes Paul's statement here in Ephesians that sexual sins should not even be named among believers. Third word, no hint of greed. Now, this is interesting. Why would he throw this in there? Well, I think it's related to the other two. But greed must not even be named among you. What is this greed? 
It means wanting what is not yours, sexually desiring someone who's not your wife or not your husband. It's greed. You want something that's not yours. You're greedy about that in your heart. Seeking sexual satisfaction with anyone who's not your spouse. We'll find out later in the text that it amounts to idolatry, worshiping your desire over God. Idolatry is anything for which you will sin to enjoy or anything you sin because you didn't get to enjoy it. That's idolatry. And we'll study that more intently when we get down later in chapter 5. See how greed goes with it? All sexual lust and sexual sin it amounts to greed. You're, you're, you're wanting something that, that, that God hasn't granted and using sinful means to obtain it. Paul says, it must not even be named among you, which is another way of saying it shouldn't be named among you. You shouldn't even be talking about it, which will have something to do with our next verse on no filthy talk and coarse jesting. You see where that's going? As is proper among the holy ones, proper among the saints. All throughout our study of Ephesians, I have leaned on my my dear friend, Dr. Harold Honer, who's a Greek scholar, and I, I can't improve on his words Here, so let me just read to you what he says. The apostle is saying that these sins should be so universally absent from the body of believers that there should be no occasion to associate these sins within the church. Herodotus makes a similar statement when he asserts, quote, one may not speak about what one may not do, end quote. Can I just add there? nor should one watch what one would not do. F.F. Bruce states, such unholy things should not be acceptable subjects of conversation among the people of God whom he is called to be holy. Therefore, believers must refrain from acts and thoughts of immorality which could lead to impure talk and actions, end quote. No hint of immorality, no hint of impurity, no hint of greed. I want to back up just a little bit, take the lens and focus it out a little bit. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, now he defines it, the lust of the flesh, that's what we're talking about, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. That's important. These desires come from our heart and fed by the world, but they're not from the Father. Then he says, the world is passing away. Also it's lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You know it well, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee porneia, immorality. Flee it, run from it. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Namely, verse 20, you've been bought with a price. What's the price of your redemption? What price did God pay for your soul? The death of his son, the life of his son, 
You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Well, there's motivations. Here in verse 3, our motivations are to act in a way that's sexually appropriate and pure because of our identity. We're a holy one, proper among the saints. But let's sneak ahead. Look look down at verses 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty that no porneia, no immoral or impure person, those two words again, or covetous man, there's the greed again, who is an idolater, there's the idolatry of it, we will come back to that, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You know what that's saying? (laughs) If your life is marked by unrepentant sexual immorality, Paul says you're not a believer. You're not going to heaven. Not because you can't go to heaven with that sin, because participating in that sin demonstrates that your heart is not owned by the one who bought you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Disobeying what? The injunction to be sexually pure here. He uses the strongest argument of heaven and hell as a motivation. In studying this week, I came across an interesting article by a good friend, Kevin DeYoung. I was moved by what he said and convicted as well. So can I invite you into my little world of conviction? You can, you can find it with me. DeYoung writes this. We have to take a hard look at the things we choose to put in front of our faces. If there was a couple engaged in sexual activity on a couch in front of you, would you pull up a seat and watch? No, that would be perverse and voyeuristic. So why is it any different when people recorded it first and then you watch? What if a good-looking guy or girl, barely dressed, came up to you on the beach and said, why don't you sit on your tail right there and stare at me for a while? Would you do it? No, that would be creepy. Why is it acceptable then that when the same images are blown up the size of a three-story building, we do so? If we're honest, We often seek exposure to sexual immorality and temptations to impurity and call it innocent relaxation. Commenting on Ephesians 5.3, Peter O'Brien observes that as Christians, we should not only shun all forms of sexual immorality, we should avoid thinking and talking about them. Even our jesting, our joking should be pure lest we show a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. If, as O'Brien remarks, talking and thinking about sexual sins creates an atmosphere in which they are tolerated and which promote their practice, how can we justify paying money to see, taste, and laugh at sexual sin? How can we stare at sensuality which aims to amuse us and arouse us and weaken our conscience and deaden our sense of spiritual things? 
we must consider the possibility that much of what church-going people do to unwind would not pass muster for the Apostle Paul, not to mention God, end quote. There are people in this room who struggle with this now and have in the past. And the best thing I get to do is tell you there's grace for that. There's forgiveness for everything you've thought, everything you've done, everything you're thinking, and everything you're doing. There's grace. And there's forgiveness. But that grace has an expectation of holiness and repentance that comes along with it. We'll dive into this more next week. But for now, just know that if you are sitting there thinking, this is burdensome to my heart. Jesus says, come to me, bring me your burden. All who are weak and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. There is forgiveness, but there's the expectation of forsaking. So we'll come back to this more detailed next week, but can I give you just a really simple plan? Stop, think, pray, resist, repeat. Stop, think, pray, resist, repeat. When you're tempted, stop and think about it. Heaven and hell are at stake. This is a person. What am I doing? How am I thinking? What does God expect? Stop. Think about it. Then pray, God, give me the strength to fight this temptation. Resist. Resist. And then repeat. This is not a one and done process. If you have been just piled on with guilt by Paul's words, let God's grace, which is greater than all our sin in the gospel, wash it away. Full disclosure, I'm a wimp and I'm a chicken when it comes to scary things in movies. I, I never watch scary movies. They scare me. They frighten me. When I know a boo is coming, I say boo and I get scared. It's, I, I hate scary things. But I do remember when I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old with my dad watching an old black and white movie about a werewolf, the wolf man. You know the legend, a man involuntarily because of a curse turns into a creature at night half man, half wolf. And the main part of that old film I remember is that the werewolf, the wolf man, had a woman he loved and was terrified that he would hurt her when he turned into the werewolf. So I remember the scene where he has her, and I think it's another friend, and he's, he's begging them with passionate tears Tie me up, chain me up, bind me up. Protect yourself from me and protect me from myself. Are you willing to do that? To protect yourself and protect others and promote the dignity and pleasure of God? Are you willing to do anything to fight sexual sin in your mind, 
and in your actions so that you can be spared from God's righteous judgment against such. Well, I think that that this whole subject demands that we kind of pull the car over next week and we talk about it. I, listen, I, these are not fun things to, to preach on, but it's right there in the text, and we can't avoid it. But I do think it's a wonderful time. I think the enemy of our souls would love for us to treat this lightly, not deal, deal with it seriously. But there is hope. There is hope if you've struggled with this, and there is grace if you've fallen in this. What a God we have. What a gracious, kind God. Oh, the song, the song, the song. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than some? No. Part? No. All our sin. So next week, we're going to pull the car over and just talk about this for a little bit. I know this is a, some of you will be going into care groups tonight. You say, how do we talk about that? It might be a good, good night to get the guys in one room and the girls in another. Um, but we need to talk about these things. I think if we don't, the enemy has such traction. He makes us lonely in our sin. Father, give us the grace that we need to honor you and obey you. Help us to love the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who came, who lived, who suffered, who died for our sins, who rose from the grave and offers us eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen.